You know, one of the most gracious things that God could probably ever do to a human or to a person is to give you a a non-lethal dose of what life would be like without him. Let me say that again. One of the kindest things God could ever do to a human being is to give them a non-lethal dose of what life would be like without him. We, uh, we're, we're creatures. Did you know that? We're creatures. We're not creator, we're creatures. And as, create, as created beings, we are conduits. You know what the difference between a, a conduit and a source is? A conduit is meant to channel something from a source to something else. We are not in and of ourselves a power source. We are not in and of ourselves a life source. Something gave us life. Something started your life. You're a conduit of life. That's the reality of being a creature and not a creator. Now, unfortunately, humanity has been living for thousands of years on reserve power, on backup generators. You know what backup generators are? It's like when the power goes out, the generator kicks in and it gives you sort of the feeling like the power is still connected until the generator kicks off. So Genesis chapter 3, before Genesis chapter 3, we were plugged into life. We were plugged into God's life. But then at the fall of man, we were unplugged from God's life and the backup generators came on and it's appeared to most humans for most of history that we do have some sort of life within ourselves. But the reality is we've been unplugged and the generators are going to stop. Are you with me? God needs to get us to see that. He needs to get us to realize that because it's dangerous to not recognize that he is the source of life. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I had a, or maybe it was a couple years, maybe a year ago, I had a foster daughter and uh, she was about four at the time and she was a very spirited little girl and, and she, she was convinced that she knew how to swim, right? And, uh, and the reason she was convinced she knew how to swim is because she had swam with a life vest on. And so she, she thought in her head, I know how to swim because when I jump in the water, I float. And it was so funny, like, don't worry, this doesn't take a dark turn or anything. Uh, it's just an analogy. I, you know, I try to explain to her over and over again, like, no, no, girl, you don't know how to swim. You don't know how to swim. She, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know. Uh, when I jump in the water, I can swim. And I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, what do I need? To, like, what's the most non-lethal way for me to, uh, don't worry, I didn't throw her in the water without a, you know, you guys are thinking, you're like, Sam probably threw her in the water without a life vest. Maybe I should have. I don't know. She wasn't really my kid. So anyway. <laughs> If it was my kid, I probably would have been like, poof, there you go. How you feel now? Huh? Um, just kidding. Don't call it child welfare. Okay. Um, what am I trying to I'm trying to communicate to this little girl that, like, no, you can't swim. There's, a, there's, a, there's an agency around your chest that's making it feel like you can swim, but the reality is you actually would drown. And God's trying to communicate that message to all humanity. I know it feels like you're still plugged in, there's still life, there's still things happening. But the reality is humanity and the world and creation has been unplugged and we're running on backup generation. There's going to come a time where the gas is going to run out. And if we don't plug back into the life source of God, we're going to die. We're going to perish. I want you to visualize something this morning and I want you to keep that visual as we work through this text. I want you to visualize a power strip. You know what a power strip is? So an extension cord with some plugs on the end, right? We all use them, and they're helpful. Why are they helpful? Because they channel power from the wall to multiple objects. 
And that's good. And that's kind of how God designed humans to be. God designed us to be power strips, to be plugged into him, plugged into his life, his love, his truth, his goodness. And then we're supposed to channel that as kingdom uh, collaborators. We're supposed to channel his, his rule and his peace and his goodness onto other people. And so family systems and wives and kids and friends, and, and they, they plug into the power strip and they too are attached to the goodness and life of God. You know, if you're a believer, you're, a, you're, you're the grace of God, or you're bringing the grace of God into your workplace simply because you're plugged into Christ, right? So here's the problem. Here's what we tend to do as, humanity, as humans. We tend to take the plug out of the wall and plug it right back into our own power strip. Have you ever done that by accident? I do it all the time. I'm like, why is this stupid power strip not working? I'm hitting the reset button, and I'm like, oh, I plugged it back into itself. That's, that's humanity in a nutshell. Humanity in a nutshell is a power strip plugged back in to itself. Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to have you go there, I'm just going to read it. Paul's indictment against humanity in Romans chapter 1, here's what he says. He says, for his, that is God, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, humans are really not, they really don't have any excuse to not acknowledge God as creator because just look at the heavens, look at the cosmos, look at design, look at humans, right? Clearly there's, there's um, an author uh, that's writing this story. 21, for although they knew God, that means although they acknowledged God. You guys know there's a difference between acknowledging God and trusting God? People acknowledge God all the time, especially with expletives, right? People, people acknowledge God when it's convenient, but there is a difference between acknowledging the existence of God and bowing the knee and trusting God. So Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images, created things resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. So what did God do? So in other words, that's Paul speak for, they took the extension cord and plugged it right back into the power strip, okay? So what's God gonna do? Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. And you skip ahead to verse one or chapter 128. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, yeah. So, so essentially, God at times gives up humanity to experience the reality of, of what he's been holding back from them. He throws them in the pool without a, without a, life, without a life, jacket, life jacket, basically. Here's what God does sometimes. God lets us worship self and worship creation to the point that we become like animals in hopes that we might recognize that we need his life back. You guys, I've heard this so many times on the news lately um, when it comes to the, the Hamas attacks, when it comes to um, the shooting that's happened in Maine, it comes to a lot of the violence, just this incredible amount of violence that we're taking in in the news every evening. It's this, these people are not human. Have you heard that? They're animals. And, and I would kind of go, yeah, there's some truth to that. 
Why do we say that? We say that because the reality is for someone to get to a point where they would be so sadistically willing to, to um, mutilate a human being, they, they've basically lost what it is to be a human, right? They've become animals. Well, interestingly, in Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to look at it over the course of two weeks, we're going to see a man who had all the power and all the authority and all the, the prowess and all the prestige and all the glory, Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to see God throw him in the pool without a life jacket for a minute. We're going to see God try to reveal to this guy that he's plugged his extension cord right back into his own power strip. We're going to see God reduce him to an animal. Now, God's not going to make him an animal. God's going to let him become what he already was. That's essentially what's going to happen in Daniel chapter 4. And what, what we're supposed to take from this is we're supposed to recognize that pride, as it's been called by Augustine, is the essential sin of all humanity. Pride, Augustine would say, is the sin that all other sins flow out of. Here's what Augustine says. Augustine says, he said, pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? Now listen to this. this. And this undue exaltation is when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end in and of itself. So the pride of humanity is to say, I don't need God. I can live without God. I can source my life and myself. I can look to myself. I can look to created things. I have everything I need. I don't need God. That's the, the essential sin of humanity. It's the essential sin as we'll see in, in the garden. And it's a very basic sin that we're going to see in Nebuchadnezzar. And God is graciously trying to remove the self so that he can get Nebuchadnezzar to the Savior. And that's what God's trying to do in all of us. He's trying to remove our dependence on self so that we'll begin to trust the Savior. Now, have you noticed as we've been looking through Daniel uh, that God has been relentlessly pursuing a relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar? Have you seen that? Time and time again, God is interested in the salvation of this pagan king. For those of you joining us, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the ancient empire, one of the first, really the first world ruling empire uh, of its day, 600 BC, Babylon conquered the whole world and Nebuchadnezzar was the crown uh, sitting, sitting on the throne of that empire, right? And so um, God has been trying to get his attention and he's been trying to do it through miraculous acts, through, through signs and wonders. And Nebuchadnezzar seems to sort of tune in for a second and then he just tunes right back out. He goes, oh, who is this God? Uh, I'm going to go back to my gods. I'm going to go back to doing my thing. Now, I, I want you to see that, you know, God can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Not only is God trying to save Nebuchadnezzar, but God is also trying to do something on a geopolitical scale. God is trying to preserve uh, and create a space where all of the exiles, all the Jews that were ripped out of their home could live peaceably and live out Jeremiah's prophecy that they would sit for 70 years in discipline. God is graciously trying to, to get a king that's plugged into his wall so that he can have, be an extension of God's uh, kingdom shalom and kingdom peace. God's doing all this stuff at the same time. So he, he's saving Nebuchadnezzar while he's simultaneously trying to get a hold of the guy who who's, seems to have all the power so that God can bless the nations. God at all time is pouring out two types of grace common grace and saving grace. And he does both at the same time. Common grace is anytime God is holding back evil. God is restraining evil. God is working to bless humanity, even in a fallen state. Saving grace is God's work to bring someone into the kingdom of God, to bring someone to saving faith. And God's doing both of those things right now, by the way, in our, in our world. He's working on a geopolitical level, showing common grace to the nations. He's also saving individuals. He's doing both of those things. So today, we're going to see Neb. I just, it's so hard to call him Nebuchadnezzar. It's so long, wasted calories. We're just going to call him Neb, okay? 
We're going to see Neb have a vision, literally in my notes. Okay, truth time. I, I can't spell Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and, and so it's so much work to try to remember how to spell Nebuchadnezzar. I just put Neb in my notes because it's easier. Okay. Uh, it's a hard name. So today we're going to see him get a vision of reality. We're going to see one of the, the God do one of the most gracious things he can do, which as I said in the intro, is to give Nebuchadnezzar a non-lethal dose of what life would look like without God. Right? A non-lethal dose. Just enough to get him to hopefully wake up and tune in to God's program. Uh, this is going to be a two-part. We're going to look at the first part of chapter four this week, and we'll see how it concludes next week. Next week, we'll see how Nebuchadnezzar responds to God's gracious work. This week, we're going to see how God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar and trying to get him to tune into reality. Okay, let's dive right in. Chapter four, verse one. It opens like this. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Oh, interesting. Who's writing the Bible here right now? Anybody? Nebuchadnezzar. This is interesting. This is a pagan, Gentile, polytheistic, murderous king who's writing something that ended up in your Bible. It's been inscripturated. Isn't that interesting? So King Nebuchadnezzar writes this, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So this is how chapter four opens. It opens where it ends, okay? It opens with Nebuchadnezzar um, having already been through the experience that we're just about to read about. And it opens with him sending a state-level document, we essentially like, like Nebuchadnezzar's tweeting this out, okay? Um, remember when presidents and stuff didn't tweet things? Um, and now it's like super normal for, for like a you know, high official to be able to just like tweet something out, right? Immediately until they get kicked off and banned. Um, and then let back on when somebody buys it and changes the name to X. Okay, but I'm just speaking in hypotheticals. So, so here you have the most powerful man in the world who, who is who's, who's taking advantage of the fact that he has this huge audience with all of the literate world, and he writes down a decree that's supposed to be published throughout all the world, and what does he want everyone to know? He wants them to know about the God of the Jews. Isn't that incredible? Now, if you remember, uh, last week, we saw a similar thing happen where Nebuchadnezzar used all of his power and all of his influence to gather all of his cronies onto this plain of Dura and get everybody to bow down to some kind of golden image. Well, something has changed here. Something has happened in this man, and now he's using his platform to get all peoples and all languages and all tongues to focus on and worship the kingdom of Yahweh. This is incredible. What happens? Well, chapter four tells us what happens. It's quite interesting. He, see, he sa uh, says, by the way, he sees all the things that are gonna happen to him in chapter four as a net positive for him. He says, these things were done for me. And he's not just talking about what's going to happen in chapter 4. He's talking about what happened in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Well, what happened in those chapters? Let me remind you, there was signs and wonders. The God of the Jews, Yahweh, was showing up in miraculous ways, preserving his people, preserving them in the flames, preserving them in their dietary convictions. Interpreting dreams, God's revealing himself through Daniel. He's given Daniel the ability to interpret supernatural vision. And, and Nebuchadnezzar now, in his clear mind, he goes, all of these things were done for me. He sees it as God pursuing him and God uh, trying to reveal himself to him. Keep going. Verse four. Now we begin the narrative. Verse four says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house 
and prospering in my palace. Here's the timeline. Last, uh, last week, we were in chapter 3. This is about 15 years after chapter 3, 15 years after uh, Babylon Con. Remember we talked about that last week? 15 years after, after Nebuchadnezzar gathered all of the p- important people on the plain of Dura. 15 years probably later. And a lot has happened in the building of the kingdom of Babylon. A lot of good things for, for, for Nebuchadnezzar. He's had some pretty successful military campaigns. Most scholars seem to agree that this took place right after the conquering of Egypt, which was sort of the last holdout that Babylon wasn't sort of able to get a hold of. So they finally took over Egypt, which sort of solidified their world rule. And after that, history concludes that there was about seven years of peace in the kingdom of Babylon. And that's probably when this took place. So what happens here is Nebuchadnezzar goes out onto his rooftop condo and he begins to gaze at all of the things that he's done. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not only a military guy, even more so he was a builder. He was all about building things. He built the great hanging gardens, which, which are still one of the, I think, seven wonders of the world, right? He built his own palace. He built all kinds of things. And of course, he would have the best view of his kingdom. He, incre- he created an incredible kingdom. Now, Daniel is about 45 now. He's sort of just, just close to midlife crisis probably, you know, um, if you believe in those things. Uh, he's in his mid-40s. He's a, he's a very successful statesman. He's been ruling the affairs of Babylon for many years. These guys, as we'll see, have some kind of a relationship that's built over this time. Now, just a quick note here. Nebuchadnezzar, it says, is at ease where? On his porch. He's on the porch swing. Isn't that great? How many of you guys are ready for the porch swing? Just be done with life. Just sipping a nice, you know, whatever, non-alcoholic beverage on, on my, you know, my porch swing. And I'm just looking at over the yard and my perfectly groomed, and I got my RV sitting over there, retirement, so sweet. Okay. Porch is the most dangerous place. Don't believe me? Read about King David. What do I mean by porch? I mean, I arrived. I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to get up and fight my own sin. I don't have to get up and deal with my own flesh. I don't have to get up and work hard to believe the gospel. Man, I'm just going to swing on the porch and look at all the things that I've done. Be careful of porch mode, okay? Be careful of porch mode. It's dangerous. This is the place in which God says, oh, Neb, you think you made it, huh? Well, let me show you a little bit of reality. Let me just toss you in the pool without your life preserver for a minute and see how you feel, okay? So beware of that. And by the way, don't mistake God's blessings in your life for God's endorsements of your lifestyle. Sometimes we do that, right? Like, man, things are going good. My marriage seems to be good. I'm healthy. Like, I got money in the bank. God must be stoked about the way I'm living. Well, no, not necessarily, nor should we mistake, you know, hard things for God's lack of pleasure in us. It's just not the way it works. Verse five, so, verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So once again, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And just like all the dreams in the book of Daniel, it's much more vivid than he can just sort of ignore. It's more vivid than the kind of dream that goes away after you're done with your first cup of coffee in the morning. It's a vision that sticks with him. It bothers him. It's, it's concerning to him, okay? And one of the most gracious things God can do is try to tap on our shoulder and try to get our attention. The question, it's like those little bumps, you know, at the end of the road that people, for people that are sleeping, you know? He's just, he's been tapping Neb on the shoulder like time and time again, like, hey, buddy, are you gonna wake up? 
You going to acknowledge that I am truly the God of the universe, or are you just going to keep living in your delusion? So here's another opportunity that God has given Nebuchadnezzar to wake up. Now, unfortunately, there seems to be such big gaps between these moments that Nebuchadnezzar forgets and goes right back to normal life. Can you, can you guys relate with that? God's kind of like, hey, getting my attention a little bit here. You know, you're like almost getting a car accident. You're like, whoa, man, I need to think about my eternity. And then like, you, you know, you're good for a week and you're just back to the way things are. This is kind of the way it is with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse six, so I made a decree, he says, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, you remember these guys, came in and told, I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, we should stop here and ask the question, like, Neb, what are you doing? Like, why are you still asking these boneheads to help you understand anything? These guys are idiots, and you know it. We already figured that out back in chapter two. Why are you knocking on the door of these guys, okay? But here's the thing I think we're supposed to learn here is that old habits die hard. Like, Neb still believes that his gods have answers. He still believes that his cabinet of, of, of wizards and, and, and Chaldeans and star reachers and soothsayers are, are, are going to somehow bring vision into his life. He still believes that. And frankly, I, I, I'm assuming here, but I think he's afraid of what Daniel might tell him. And he's hoping, like, maybe these guys will give me better news. And by the way, you might write this down. Your true God is the thing you call first when you're in trouble. Okay? Think about that. Your true God is the thing you call first when you're in trouble. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. So after he, he gets done with these guys, he calls Daniel in, his old friend, and he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God. His God was named Bel, by the way, the God of Nebuchadnezzar. The Belshazzar, the name he gave to Daniel, just means uh, Bell save the king, which isn't working out so good. Uh, anyways, so, anyways, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream, saying, oh, Belteshazzar, chief, uh, chief of the magicians. Now, by the way, he wasn't a chief magician. He was chief of the magicians. That just means he was their supervisor. It doesn't mean Daniel practiced witchcraft or anything like that. Absolutely not. Uh, but he was over these guys. He was, he was their authority, is because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar still, uh, he, he, he knows he can't get answers anywhere else and so he finally calls on down. Just a side note here, um, you know, people don't always go, if you're a Christian who's trying to be faithful witness in your workplace or in a relationship, people don't always call you first but they will call you eventually because the world has no answers, Right? So he does call Daniel eventually, and, uh, and here's what happens. He, he retells the vision in verse 10. Visions of my head as I lay in bed uh, were, were these. I saw and behold, note it, a tree. So this vision is about a tree. Keep that in mind. And in the midst of the earth, it, its height was great. This is a big tree. This is a tall tree, a tall tree that reaches to heaven. Now often, by the way, trees were in the ancient days were used as symbols of kingdoms and kings. Okay, so you could probably guess who the tree is about in this vision. It's about, it's about Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Spoiler alert, it's about Nebuchadnezzar. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, 
And in it was food for all the beasts of the field, found shade under it. Note this phrase, please note it. You guys going to note it? Note it? Noting? Okay, thank you. It's important. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. Put that on the side and keep it there. All flesh was fed from it. So here's the picture. Nebuchadnezzar says, I had this dream, and in this dream, there's this tree, it's this massive tree, reaches to the heavens, it fills the whole earth, it's a glorious tree, it's full of leaves, it's full of fruit, and because it's full of leaves, and because it's full of fruit, it's created an ecosystem for an entire group of symbiotic life. There's animals and beasts and birds that are living off of the fruitfulness of this tree. Now, we live in the Pacific Northwest, so it's really hard for us to understand the value of a tree, because we got lots of them. Okay, but if you were to go into a Middle Eastern uh, area, if there's a tree, what does that mean? There's water. And if there's a tree, then there's shade. And if there's a tree, then there's food, right? And so animals will go for all miles around to get to these, these little ecosystems of life. That's what this tree represents. He's saying Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar has become like this little, this little oasis of life that people are, are, are living from and, and, and taking from. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's one of the ways God created government to, to, to actually function, right? Government is designed to be a covering, an ecosystem that, that allows life to flourish. That's the government's job. Okay, the government's job is to protect you and create a place where you can actually have life. Okay, we read about that in Romans chapter 13. Now, the vision's gonna take a bit of a dark turn. Are you ready? And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now, who's the watcher? The watcher is an angel. Uh, the watchman was an ancient term that would have been known in those days to be referred to as sort of a, a chief officer of a kingdom. Okay, so this is an angelic being who's, who's come in to declare something from a higher power. Verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said thus. Now he's gonna, he's gonna tell what they need to do with the tree. He says, chop down the tree. Lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. And let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So the declaration is coming from a superior administration. Now, this, this is stunning because Babylon, pardon me, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the highest rule in the land. He thinks he's the king of kings. Oops. Here comes a watcher, a spokesperson from another higher kingdom, a higher superpower, and all he does is just command it and the whole tree comes down. How powerful is Nebuchadnezzar really in this vision? It's kind of concerning, right? It's concerning for Babylon, for Nebuchadnezzar. So the threat is not to the kingdom itself. Notice that. The threat is to the king. Because see, the animals and the life, they'll just go to another tree. And that's exactly what, what happens, right, when the, the fall of Babylon. So, but really, what, what, what he's saying here is he's saying, if you don't get your act together, if you don't actually start to acknowledge me, then all of the things you've been called to steward are going to leave and someone else is going to steward them. You'll be cut down, you'll be stripped of your glory, your fruit will be taken away. The threat is a loss of platform and power and prestige. I like how my friend uh, Rick Boya always says that the key to humility is humiliation. The key to humility is humiliation. And that's exactly what God's gonna have to do here with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, hey, buddy, if you don't acknowledge me as your source of life, you're gonna really be humiliated. 
And we'll see that as the story develops. Verse 15, but, the, but leave the stump. Now notice this. He doesn't rip the tree out of the ground. He doesn't burn it. He says, leave the stump and its root system. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Now the band of iron and bronze is not to limit the tree. It's to protect the tree. It's to protect the stump. So that at some point it can be used again. So God's not trying to snuff out Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to repurpose Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to use him for God's kingdom and God's glory. He says, amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Note the switch of pronouns here goes from talking about the tree to talking about the tree as though it's a him. Okay, and I think Nebuchadnezzar's smart enough to pick up on that. Who's the him, right? So the, the command is that, hey, you know, you're gonna go and you're gonna become what you really are, which is a beast. You're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna lose your mind for, for probably seven years. It says seven periods of time. Now, there was a seven-year period where we don't hear much of anything about Babylon. It's very likely that that was the time that it happened. Verse 17, now the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end. Now here's why this is all gonna happen. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. Here's the lesson you need to learn, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the thing God's trying to get you to see that the kingdom of men is ruled by the most high God. And he gives it to whomever he will in other words, he gave it to you, he can give it to someone else. And he sets over it the lowliest of men. See, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's really something. He thinks he's really the guy. Man, I got here because of how, you know, how, how, how strong I am and how clever I am and how, what a good dictator and, and, and military leader I am. And God's trying to go, you think you got here because you got yourself here? I put you here, buddy. I put you here and you didn't even know. You didn't even recognize. You're not even recognizing that I'm the one that puts you. God's the one that raises up kings. God's the one that raises up kingdoms for his purposes, for what he's doing. He's trying to get Nebuchadnezzar to tune into that. So he says, I could put the lowliest of men, which I, I think is something we see all throughout the Bible, right? With King David. Where's the brother that's, you know, short and little? We don't even want to march him out here. You know, we see that with, with, with constantly. God loves to raise up the least of these. Verse 18, let's finish it up. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. In other words, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, you know, you're my only hope is kind of what he's trying to say there, right? Like these other guys got nothing for me. I need you to help me out, old friend. You've done this for me before. Remember 30 years ago when we were younger men, you gave me the interpretation of the vision of the statue. Can you do that for me again, please? So Daniel in verse 19, whose name was Belshazzar, uh, or Belteshazzar, was, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And Daniel's really bothered by this vision. Why is he bothered by the vision? He's not the tree. The answer is because Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody made this point to me this week. I thought it was worth repeating. How, do, how, how good are you at loving pagan people that burned down your city? How, how good are you at loving people that tried to burn your friends in a furnace and that kidnapped you and took you out of your land? 
Daniel had a, an affection for Nebuchadnezzar, which I think is godly and it's to be praised. He actually cared for his pretty angry, pretty evil, dictatorial pagan boss. And he was a good witness in his life. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and in the interpretation for your enemies. In other words, you're, those people that are sitting by waiting for you to get out of the throne so they can take it, they're, they're ready. 20, the tree you saw, now he's going to give the interpretation, let me just read it real quick, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. Neb's like, dang it, I knew it. I knew it was about me. Ah. Verse 22, king, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown. It reaches to the heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound, uh, bound with a band of iron and bronze of the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. It's repeating a lot of the same stuff. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. And this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. In other words, God's gonna, he can, he can give you your kingdom back. He's gonna hold on to it for you. In fact, I think the way he did that was through Daniel. I think Daniel actually had the authority to hold on to the, the throne for him, and I think he did that. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. 27 is important. Here's the call to repentance. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. In other words, king, please listen. Please listen to what this is trying to teach you. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. That tells us is that underneath the beauty of the tree of Babylon was a lot of rot, a lot of injustice, a lot of immorality, a lot of taking advantage of people. Most large kingdoms get that way on the backs of others, right? And that's the reality here. So God is saying, hey, I want you to pay attention to who's really in charge, Nebuchadnezzar, and I want you to start living according to the principles of my kingdom. So what do we do with this? What is this? This is a call, not for the demise of Nebuchadnezzar, this is a gracious invitation for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. God is a God who graciously extends invitation after invitation after invitation to repent. And what does repent mean? It means change your mind. Change your mind, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he's trying to do. It's a gracious, gracious invitation for him to recognize reality. Now, God's willing to hold his seat at the table. He says, I just want you to acknowledge this. And, and here's the options, Nebuchadnezzar. He gives him three options, okay? Option A, you can just take my message and repent now and continue on being a tree of life for people and your kingdom will thrive and your, your, your influence will continue. Even though it's counterintuitive now, you could do that. Option B, you could ignore me and I'm gonna throw you in the pool without a life preserver, and let you feel the fact that you're a beast. 
and then you'll repent, or you could just not repent at all, in which case you'll perish, and the stump will be ripped from the ground. That's the reality of how God interacts with humanity in general. Now, there's a pattern, just by the way, there's a pattern here I want you to pick up on, and that is that God always sends his word before he begins to oftentimes uh, introduce discipline, right? And this is such a grace that God gives Nebuchadnezzar a chance to come to his senses. God also plants a witness in his life. You see that? He put Daniel strategically in the life of Nebuchadnezzar so that he would have someone to explain the truth. God also often graciously meets our first no with the revelation of humiliation. And that's what he had to do with Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see that more next week. And God also preserves and restores our purpose. So, so even if you, rep, you know, you may have done some terrible things in your life. If you come to Christ, the tree, the root system's still there. God's still gonna use you. He's not done with you. He's not done with you. If you repent, he's like, I, I can bring you, I can bring your influence, bring your kingdom, bring your, you're like a power strip. You can be a supply of life to others once again. You just gotta plug into me. That's what he's trying to tell him. Now, let's step back here. We've got a few minutes here. Let's step back and try to get one big thing out of this. What's the big idea that we're supposed to see? Again, we'll see how Nebuchadnezzar responds next week, so be sure and come back for that. I think the big thing that we're supposed to see here is this. I think Nebuchadnezzar represents, to some degree, all of us. And, 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 and this decision that we have to make, and not just once, but many times for our life, and I'm going to call it the dilemma of the two trees. All of us are, are living in the dilemma of the trees. It's not anything new. Nebuchadnezzar's quandary here, his decision that he has to make, do I want to tune into my own tree or do I want to tune into some, to, to some other power here, some other kingdom? It's the same thing that humans and all creation has been having to decide for all of creation. In fact, you know, this dilemma, this two-tree dilemma, it started before God made the cosmos, because see, there were created beings, spirit beings, the Satan and the demonic that chose to rebel against God's kingdom. And what was that? That was, that was pride. It was them saying, we're going to plug into our own power strip. We're going to take our resources and we're going we're to go build our own kingdom, a kingdom that's in rebellion to you. And then that, that existed before. Now, God created uh, the, the heavens and the earth, right? He did it in six days, rested on the seventh. He put man in the center of his creation. And in the center of the creation, follow me here, okay? This is cool. Follow me. In the center of the, the creation, he put a garden. And the garden is what? It's an oasis. It's an ecosystem, like the tree. You see it? It's a place where God designed life to thrive and life to, to work, and in the middle of that ecosystem, God put two trees. He put the tree of life, symbolizing God's eternal Zoe life, the life of God. And then he put the life of death, also known as the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave humanity a choice. He said, which tree do you want? And we know the story. Adam and Eve chose the tree of rebellion. They chose the tree of self. And because of that, a band was placed, not around the stump, but a band was placed around the garden. They were kicked out. God's life, they were separated from God's life. Now, there has been many, uh, there, there's, there's many prices that came as a result of that. The choice to, to choose this tree meant separation from God's life, which is what? Death. It's death. It's the reality of the life that we now live in. Not only death for ourselves, but death for those that are plugged into our power strip. Look at Cain and Abel. 
Sin immediately passes on to the next generation. Cain kills Abel. Why? Because Adam unplugged from life. And now death is the reality. Now there's a disconnect, a separation from God's place, God's oasis, God's garden where the tree of life dwells. Now God uh, brought up many kingdoms at many times through human history to to sort of bring uh, garden-like places like Babylon, right? One of them was Israel. God said, I'm gonna plant an Eden-like thing in this world and it's gonna be called Israel. And the metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament was a vineyard, very similar to the tree. It's, it's going to be a vineyard. I'm going to plant it for the purpose of, of bringing fruit. And so again, this tree dilemma, this choice was there in front of Israel as well, just like it was there for Adam and Eve, just like it was there for, for the, uh, Satan and the demons uh, before the creation of the cosmos. This decision, this choice, what are we going to do? Is Israel going to continue to come to God or is Israel going to tune into its own life source? And what did Israel do? They chose to rule self. They chose to kick God out of his own kingdom. They chose to try to rule their own vineyard. Now, follow me here. A very specific thing happened. The tree of Israel was chopped down. The line of David seemed to be all but gone. But what was the promise? The promise was that out of the stump of Jesse, out of the stump of David, would come the root of Jesse, the Messiah. A new tree would come. Isn't that interesting? So what's the point? What am I, what am I getting at here? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Verse 31, if you're totally sleeping, I promise it'll come back around here in a moment. Matthew chapter 31, 13, 31, this is so key. Remember that thing earlier I really, really wanted you to remember? What was it? Something about the birds nesting in a tree? Okay, just hold on to that. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Now, Jesus is trying to describe for the disciples the kingdom of God. It's one of Jesus' most important priorities when he was teaching. I need you to get the kingdom of God. And here's what, uh, how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. He says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. What do we learn here? We learn that this is a new plant, a new source of life. It started with a seed, something small, something that had to go into the ground and die. But then verse 32, it is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a what? A tree. Now, I think Jesus is trying to get our attention to Daniel chapter four right here. I think he is alluding to the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. He says, the reason for this tree is so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That's Daniel speak. That's out of Daniel chapter four. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that, that the, the, the problem with life is that mankind keeps plugging into their own power strip over and over and over again. And every time we have a tree that is bringing some semblance of peace and some semblance of human flourishing, it dies. It dies because it refuses to acknowledge its source. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is starting a new tree, a new source of life from the seed of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that seed is gonna grow up and become a superior tree, a superior ecosystem in which all of life will find shalom finally in his kingdom. Jesus is the greater tree. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there because we don't have time, but listen to what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 1. I am the true vine. He says, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Verse four is the key. Abide in me. That means plug your extension cord into my life, into what I did on the cross, into what I'm gonna do in the resurrection. Plug your cable, pull it out of your own you're out of your own power strip and plug it into me. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The dilemma has always been, which thing am I gonna plug into? Am I gonna plug into God or am I gonna plug into self? Two trees in the garden, tree of life, tree of death. Two trees before Nebuchadnezzar. Tree of self, the tree of God. Two trees before you. The tree of this world and this kingdom and this domain and the tree of Christ. Which one are you going to abide in? Only one has life. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Plug back into me, he says. It's the same call. And then in Revelation 22, with the new heavens and the new earth, after everything happens and everything goes down, however it goes down, we see uh, in Revelation 22, 3, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. I want you to draw this line in your head from the garden to the Israel that was cut down, but there's a new vine coming out of it, Jesus the Messiah, and Babylon over here, this, this tree that was bounded, and, and, then, and then to Christ, the vine, and then over to Revelation 22, at the end of all things, when we see the new heavens and the new earth, and we see a tree, the tree of life, which is Christ. And what is the tree of life? Its leaves are not stripped, but they are the glory of the nations. They are the life for the nations. Are you following me? What's the point? Let me just try to make it very simple. True life is available to us but it's not within ourselves. It is, it is within him. It is within his tree, the tree of the cross, the tree of the resurrection, the tree of, of, of the life that Jesus has become. And Nebuchadnezzar's gotta make his decision, and so do we. What do I look to for life? Now, let me try to get really practical here because I know that was kind of a big theological uh, hopscotch. So let me try to make this very practical. I wanna help you understand how you know if you plugged into your own power strip. Okay, because some of you might be thinking that, okay, how do I know if I'm eating from this tree rather than the tree of Christ? How do I know if I'm like Nebuchadnezzar? And it seems like everything's going good, but in reality, I'm not. So let me give you quickly just four signs that you might be plugged in to yourself instead of your source. Why don't you write them down? Four signs. I want you to do an audit right now of your own spiritual life. And I'm not saying you might not be a believer if you don't tick these boxes. I'm just saying you may not be connected to the tree like you should be, okay? First sign is that you have no power. Okay, how do you tell if an extension cord's not plugged in? There's no power. There's no power. And when I say power, I don't mean like the power to do kind of like miraculous, you know, wonders and signs. And I say no power, I mean, are you able to do everything that you know you can do? Well, that's, that's, that doesn't say much. How do I know if I'm connected to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Listen, it's stuff I can't produce. God-sized love. God-sized joy. 
God-sized peace and patience and kindness and goodness, things that I don't have the ability to produce. I can produce a lot in my flesh. I can produce a lot in my own strength. I could be pretty nice on the surface. I could be nice to my kids when I'm at Walmart, so I'm not that person screaming at them, you know, in the car. Like, I could do a lot of that, you know. I can have a decently healthy and happy life in my own strength. But the question is, are you living out of a strength that's beyond yours? Are you putting yourself in positions where you have to abide in Christ? There's no way I could possibly walk through this faithfully unless the Spirit of God is producing His life through me. I've got to plug into Him. So one of the first signs that you might be plugged into yourself is that you're only doing things that you could do in your own strength. The believers should posture their life in such a way that they have to plug into Christ. The second way that you, you might be able to tell is that you have no peace. Not only no power, but, but no peace, number two. Now, I, I, by no peace, I, I don't mean that you're never stressed. Okay, even Jesus was emotionally distraught for quite a bit of his ministry. He was a man of sorrows. So I'm not saying, like, oh, if, you, if, you're, if you're anxious at all or you're depressed at all, you're not plugged in. But, but what I am saying is when you find yourself spinning out all the time because what you're thinking about is your own performance and your own influence and your own image and your own comfort and your own safety and your own life and you're on overdrive. You know what anxiety is? Anxiety is playing out potential scenarios of how things might not go the way you want. But most of them have to do with, with, with you and your comfort, right? And, and that's, that's real life. That's normal stuff. But here's the problem. The problem is when you're, when you're letting anxiety control you, you're not believing the gospel, because largely what anxiety is in many ways, and I don't necessarily mean the clinical sense, but when you're just sort of letting fear consume you, you're, you're, so, you're so tuned into your own life that you're terrified of losing it. What happens when you believe the gospel? Your value system shifts. You go, yeah, I am a loser. <laughs> yeah, I am a sinner. Yeah, I am broken. Yeah, I do fail. I do let people down. Yeah, I am a dirtbag. I can admit that, the reason I can admit that is because my whole self and life has been transferred into the, the riches of Christ's life and not my own. I'm not plugged into my own report anymore. You know, most of anxiety is getting in a feedback loop where we're just so worried about our own image or our own life or our own comfort. When we believe the gospel, we go, forget that. I'm saturated and I'm plugged into the life of Christ, his victory, what he's done. So take my life, take my comfort, take my image, take my influence my life is hidden with Christ. That's why Paul could sit in prison and be content there. So a sign that you're not plugged into Christ, that you're plugged into yourself, is no peace, no power, no peace. Number three, no penitence. Penitence just means repentance. You know, a lack of repentance does not mean that you have an absence of sin. A lack of repentance means that you're just not paying attention to it. A sign of a maturing believer is that they become more and more aware of just how deeply sinful they are stuff that you didn't even realize was a sin, you find out later it was. And what that means is that you got holes in your knees. The pants, holes in your pant knees. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Not holes in your knees, that'd be weird. Holes in your, your pant knees because, pant knees, that's weird. I don't know. I think I need to close in prayer. Okay. You got, you got a well-worn beeline back to the cross. Sign of a mature believer is they're the first one in the room to say that they have sin and the first one in the room to say that they're so thankful for grace. Is there a lack of repentance in your life? A lack of admission? I mean, if you feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty good, like you're probably doing terrible. 
I always worry when I sit in a, a circle of people and just like, how can we pray for you? And they're like, I'm great. I'm like, no, you're not. You just don't, you're on the porch, right? You're in porch mode. Watch out for porch mode. Nebuchadnezzar thought everything was great. But in reality, he was a beast who needed to be humbled. Lastly, number four, fourth way you can tell is not only no power, not only no peace, not only no penitence, but number four, no pursuit. What are you chasing? What do you want? What do you, what do you spend in the majority of your life trying to get? Is it Christ? Abiding is an action word. Abiding takes energy. Where's your energy going to? Is it to building your kingdom or is it to holding on to the gospel? Is it to pursuing a relationship with Christ and letting him be the king of your life? If there's a lack of pursuit, a lack of peace, a lack of penitence, and a lack of power, you might want to double check where your cord's plugged in and bring it back. And you got you to plug it back in every day, guys. I'm not saying that, that you do it once and you're done. Every day, you got to get up this morning and the next morning and say, am I believing the gospel today? Am I plugged into Jesus? Am I seeing the fruit of his spirit being produced in my life? So three steps to plug back in. I'm giving them really quick and then we're going to end. Three steps to plug back in. Number one, confession. Confession says, I have missed the mark. Confession says, I have worshiped self. Confession says, I cannot do enough. And confession says, I cannot be enough. That's the most freeing thing you could ever say if the gospel's true. We spend most of our lives spinning our wheels trying to prove that we're enough. And then when you come to the, the, the crossroads of the gospel, it goes, actually, I'm not enough. And that's really good news because Jesus knew that and he became enough for me. And you can take a deep breath and not be so invested in yourself because you're invested in him. So step one, confession. Step two, possession. Possession. That means, okay, I've missed the mark. I've worshiped self, but Jesus hit the mark. I'm believing that. I'm going to confess that Jesus hit the mark. I'm going to confess that Jesus offered me his perfect performance. I'm going to confess that, that my faith is in him, and because my faith is in him, all that matters is Christ's performance. And I'm going to, I'm going to believe that. And now I'm going to believe I'm enough. I'm going to believe I'm enough because Christ has made me enough. It's the difference between what the world's trying to sell you right now. The world's trying to say, just believe you're enough. The gospel says, no, you're not. Christ makes you enough if you're in Christ. Confession, possession, and here's the one nobody likes, correction. Repentance includes a turn. Okay, confession, or correction means because I know who I am, now I know what I'm supposed to do. Con correction says because I have changed my mind, now I will change my behavior. And I need you to see in this passage that there is a clear call for Nebuchadnezzar not just to acknowledge God, but to repent and change and turn. See, saving faith, and you guys know this if you've been around, saving faith is not acknowledging the existence of God. It's not acknowledging the deity of Christ. It's not acknowledging the validity of scripture. Saving faith is when you switch allegiance and put your full trust in Christ as king. And then you repent. That's what repentance is. It doesn't mean you nail it and do everything perfect. It means you've changed everything in your life because you've changed everything about what you think. You've tuned into reality. So, some of you in here, I just want to tell you, one of the most gracious things God can do in your life sometimes is give you a non-lethal dose of what it would be like to have life without him. And the reason he wants us to do that is because Romans tells us because it's his goodness that leads you to repentance. He wants you to see how bankrupt you are so that you can see how rich you could be in Christ. And that's a message for believers and non-believers, amen? All right, would you stand with me?
Jesus, I, I, I'm, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, man. I, I go out on my porch and I love to think about all the stuff I did in my own, or think that I did in my own strength. God, I'm continually just so overly impressed with myself. And then I pendulum back into the other extreme where I hate myself and loathe myself. And God, all of those things prove that I'm worshiping myself. And God, I just want to be free from that. And I don't think I'm alone in this room. Jesus, thank you that you didn't leave us in a dead tree. You didn't leave us in a kingdom that was cut down and fruitless. But Jesus, you came to be a new tree, a new greater life, a new greater ecosystem. That the tree of life is not forever banned from us. That we see it, Lord, in the end of all things, in the new heavens and the new earth. And if Jesus, we're, if we're in you, we're gonna populate that new heavens and that new earth. Thank you that the leaves of the tree of life are the healing for the nations. Thank you, God, that, that there's only one true good news for this world, and it's you, Christ, and we wanna bring it to them. God, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, that we would be witnesses like Daniel that have staying power and administrations that are terrible, working for bosses that are evil, that, God, we would actually care and be a faithful kingdom presence. God, I pray that you would give us the freedom and grace of confession and repentance in our daily life because, Jesus, you truly are enough for us. We are not. We confess that we're a creature and that you're a creator. So, God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys, you're dismissed. If you're joining us for the Get Connected, we'll be through those doors, and we'll start in about 10 minutes. So see you guys there.